Everybody, welcome back to the hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, as I've mentioned, we're on a winning streak. We're keeping it going this week. We're talking to the great Martin Ware. Now, I think everyone knows Martin's story. He starts out early in the late '70s with Phil Oakey, Ian Craig Marsh, and they form the Human League. They put out a couple of albums. The sound is very weird, but very futuristic. It's unlike anything else out there. But eventually, um, the band splits, and Phil. And, if, you know, gets the girls and they start Human League. Martin grabs Glenn Gregory and Ian and they go off and form Heaven 17. And uh, now, Heaven 17 never had quite the same level of commercial success that Human League did. But they've got bunches of fantastic songs and albums. Right here, Let Me Go, Temptation, uh, Penthouse and Pavement, Crushed by the Wheels of Industry, Fascist Groove Thing. I mean, there's tons of great stuff in there. All the while, too, Martin is also ha also has this other project, BEF, going on where he's collaborating with other people and producing like, you know, covers and stuff. And some of the people that he's that he's collaborating with are like Tina Turner, Billy McKenzie of The Associates. In fact, as I think most people know, there's that great new documentary on Tina Turner that's telling her story again, but Martin is not included in that. And he should be because he worked very closely on the Private Dancer album. We talk about that, his production work, he produces Erasure, he produces the first Terrence, Ter well, I don't know if we're allowed to say Terrence Trent Darby, but we are, um, album, and uh, among a bunch of other things. And more importantly, right now, he's got his own, as you all probably know, fantastic podcast called Electronically Yours. I'm assuming anyone who listens to this is listening to that as well. It's one of the good ones out there right now, and as usual, I've got so much pod envy for some of the people that he has on there. But anyway, um, so we talk about all of it. And it was really interesting to me because now, I think most people are get, really getting to know Martin through his podcast, through Electronically Yours. And so it was interesting for me to kind of switch it and have him be the, the uh, subject and me get to ask him all those questions. I know he's done a million interviews in his life, but at this point, he's focused on interviewing others. So it was fun to kind of turn the tables on him. Anyway, such an amazing story, so many great things, so much good music in this one. I think you're going to love it. He called me from his home in London. So I got to tell you when I first became aware of Heaven 17, because it's kind of a funny story. So I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah, and uh, my best friend is Brandon Nordgren. And around 1987, 1988... 
he tells me he wants to trade me. I have the new Bruce Willis album, uh, The Return <laughs> of Bruno, on cassette, right? And my friend Brandon Nordgren really wants it. And he decides, I'll trade you for that cassette. I said, what are you going to trade me? And he wants to trade me Heaven 17, How Men Are. And yeah. I had heard of Heaven 17, but I had never listened to Heaven 17. I was 14, 15 years old at the time. He's giving me the hard sell. Oh, no, you'll really like this. I mean, you know, we love Depeche Mode. It's just like that. You're going to love it. I'm like, well, I really like my Bruce Willis tape. <laughs> I guess I guess I will make the trade. So I, he talks me into it. I take Heaven 17's How Men, How Men Are Home, and I listen to it. And once I hear Sunset Now, I'm hooked. love sunset now <laughs> that was the beginning of my love affair of heaven 17 which is considered, uh -oh. or you know you and bef and everything else that has continued to this day so i uh, i just wanted you to know that you managed to overcome any regret i had about trading my bruce willis tape away to my yeah, bruce willis well i never thought me and bruce willis would be mentioned in the same breath but i never did there either until now now's the time so tell us I've been listening to your podcast a lot. I just discovered it with the uh, Martin Fry interview a couple of weeks yeah. ago. Electronically yours. How, I mean, obviously, it makes so much sense for you to do this because you have so many great friends and people you can call on to be on this. And we're all in lockdown and looking for things to do. So tell uh, tell me about this, the story about starting the podcast. Okay. So it was clear after about three weeks of lockdowns that I was going to go insane if I didn't do something. So, um, I, I mean, I got my studio and, um, I thought, well, I can do, I can write some music, but you know, I'm very much a believer that you are what you eat, you know, and we were eating not great stuff, uh, you know, in terms of misery. And I thought, well, do I really want to do an album which embodies my feelings of, I mean, everything I do is emotionally driven, basically. And I thought I wasn't in the frame of mind to write anything that was required, which is fundamentally something that's, that gives people hope. So I thought, well, that's music out of the way. Uh, what am I going to do? So I thought I'll do... I know what I'll do. I've been thinking about it for a few years, and I've been listening to a lot of audiobooks and, audio, uh, and autobiographies. And... Uh, 
I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll write my autobiography. You know, I've been meaning to do it for a while. Maybe this is the right time. So I did it. It took me a couple of months. Uh, well, three months in on and off. That's quick. Most people, it takes years. Yeah, I haven't finished yet. <laughs> <laughs> that was just to get a, a, a deal, you know. In a, oh, got it. I wrote, I, I wrote a pilot, a couple of chapters for a publisher, and they liked it. So got it. Okay. then I carried on writing. But really, the first draft of it has only just been listened to by my publisher because they were, you know, in the middle of whatever things they were doing. And so I've got basically I've got a lot of kind of refinement to do and and knock it into shape now because surprisingly I found out that I it was just pouring out of me, but I didn't want to go back and kind of knock it into shape. I just wanted to get get it all out first, organize it, and then take advice because the last thing I want to do is go to a lot more trouble, like fifty percent more time, and then they go no that's not what we wanted you know so. Um, I mean, I want it to be authentic, but I'm not an expert in, um, you know, book structure. Anyway, so there was that. While I was waiting for that, I had this uh, kind of light bulb moment. I thought, you know, I'm listening to a lot of podcasts. Why don't I do a podcast as a as a kind of uh, stealth trailer for for my life? You know, uh, because these kind of conversations, like we're having now, are very much. I'm talking. Well, I envisage this thing where I'm talking to people on a similar, uh, who are a similar status in the business, you know, to a certain extent. Not that I'm putting myself up there with some of the greatest. They're all your colleagues, your peers. Yeah, they're all my colleagues. So, from a business point of view, yeah. In fact, yesterday I did Tony Visconti, which is turned me down. Man, I've been trying to get him too. I think it's because um, Glenn sings in Holy Holy. See. I see his band, and he, yeah. he he's he's met he's met me, and he knows me, and sure, kind of, of it's a different relationship. You're different, so of course he's going to say uh, yes. Uh, to you. No, well, I mean, thank you. I mean, I'm glad to yeah. say he yeah, respects yeah. me, you Good know, and you. stuff. Anyway, so that that was yesterday. So that kind of level, if I can talk on a kind of level playing field with Tony Visconti, I am doing something fucking right. Let right. me tell you, because right. he's I and I told him on the podcast, I said. You know, you have produced, I think, 12 of my top 20 albums of all time. Yeah, that sounds about right. I mean, it's just an incredible, you know, to me, there's there's, there's him, there's there's the Holy Triumvirate. There's Uh there's him, there's um, Quincy Jones and Trevor Horn. Yes. That That covers pretty much everything. Yes. (laughs) Yes, that's so funny you say that. I... um... Uh, they are, they're near the top of mine too. Um, I've been wanting to talk to Trevor and, uh, I'm talking to Gary Langan next weekend. Oh, Gary's a good friend of mine. Yeah. Is he good? Yeah. I just, it's funny. I noticed you and I have a lot of crossover anyway, continue Tony Visconti. He's the greatest. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, I just mentioned, uh, just, you know, big name drop because I'm so thrilled about it. And, um, so anyway, the, the, then like the podcast, as you know, these things take a while to get up to speed and everything. But as soon as I did the Gary Newman one, it just went through the roof, and really? so it went onto another plateau. And now, oh god, oh god, I've got to keep it up there, you know. So 
now I've, I've upped it to twice a week because I've got so many in the can. Good. So I'm going to do that until I, I kind of catch back up again. And uh, let's see where that leads. So, yeah, I'm, re I'm really enjoying it, but it's turning to be, turning out to be, I need a sponsor, really, because it's turning out to cost costing me money at the moment, yeah. which I don't mind in the first instance. Sure. But, you know, I employ an engineer to put it all together for me and what have you. Oh, wow. Well. I, can't, I can't be asked. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. Uh, but, but, you know, there's not, uh, there is sometimes a lot of work, but mostly it's fairly straightforward and all the bumpers and the, stings and uh, yada 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 and i just thought it's a good way to keep your um you know about this to yeah. keep your you know keep everything up there in the public eye in time for when m um, start performing live again later this yeah. year do you think uh, you'll continue with the podcast when everything goes back to normal or is this sort of like a project to be done right now no 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 i'm going to carry on with it but um I won't be able to do two a week if I'm touring and stuff like that. So I will basically revert to one a week and uh, try and stockpile them. So, I, you know, when I'm away on tour, I don't have to think about it. Yeah. You know. Okay. Now, you mentioned t playing later this year. That's that's looking good. Having 17. Uh, before. Who knows? Yeah. I mean, it's scheduled. Yeah. You know, we're scheduled to play some festivals in the summer in the UK. In July, in fact, um, I just don't know if it's gonna. I, I don't know. I'd love it to happen, but I, I, I'm just really cautious. The reproduction and travelogue shows that were meant to that were scheduled for 2019, three days after lockdown, um, we had to cancel them, and um, so they're you know they're scheduled for September. And then we got some dates in October. The U.S. tour just has to be had to be scrapped, and now needs to be rescheduled. We had a German tour that got cancelled. It was just a nightmare. And um, well, and then I'm going. I'm doing a, a book tour as well. I'm doing That's a. Right. I'm, I'm doing a, a kind of 28 date, multimedia, Amazing. audience with tour to promote the book. Now, is so, all of this primarily taking place in the U.K. and Europe? I mean, like, are you going to do, are you going to promote the book in the States? Because Heaven 17's profiles over here never been that high. And I didn't know if yeah. that was because you didn't put in the effort or you didn't sense a, an, an urgency or what? No, we never uh, toured yeah. in the 80s. I mean, we were a studio band, essentially. We didn't tour anywhere. Right. And I think that's pretty much a prerequisite. Uh, of course, when we started with M17, it was around about the time that MTV launched. And we thought, well, we can service everywhere just with videos. And it worked for a while, but basically, ultimately, they want to see you in the flesh. Yeah. And um, so we've always, you know, done okay on the coast. But as soon as you start moving inland, nobody knows. Well, a few people, obviously, Conoscenti. But um, we were always stronger on, on, you know, on the East Coast and the West Coast. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, but, I mean, you know, obviously, I'm happy that, according to my stats, uh, nearly 15% of the listeners to the podcast are from the US. Okay. So we might not have so, you know, we might have a huge audience over there, but it's a loyal one. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I would think, and maybe this is more work than it's worth putting in, but I would think you would be perfectly suited for like some kind of, you know, one of these 80s package tours. I've seen Human League several times, I've seen yeah, yeah. see several times. Why not yeah. you? Well, uh, we've been offered it several times, and we've yeah. run the numbers, and and we weren't going to make any money at all. Okay. In fact, we might make a slight loss. So, whilst we wanted to do it, 
ultimately they couldn't come up with a package that interested us and actually when I talked to you know Martin Fry's a good friend of ours uh, OMD uh, Howard Jones they're all friends yeah. of ours yeah. talked to them about it and they more or less admitted they were doing it because they wanted to do it really because I've yeah. seen Howard and OMD several times Howard I've seen a ton and he always seems to do quite well no it's not yeah, a- but his, overheads are low. his overheads are low Oh, that's true. Okay. You know, I mean, we, as a band, we're a a five-piece band. Um, There's only me and Glenn who are permanent members, so we have to pay, you know, uh, like a crew of eight or nine uh, to travel and flights and visas and, you know. And it's just, you know, when you do all the sums, it just doesn't really add up. If we were headline, it'd be different, but we don't have that big an audience, so... And we we have been over to the and we did the Highline Ballroom, and we did uh, in, in New York, and we did um, we did a festival in L.A., uh, and we were just about to do our first headline uh, tour when COVID came along, of yeah. course, uh, which was like ten. It was only ten days, but it was the start of a process. Yeah. You know, we were really looking forward to it. Oh my god! And that was that that we'd managed to because the the. The gigs were in clumps on each, basically northeast, mm-hmm. south, southwest. Yeah. Um, yeah. Kind of, you know, the, we managed to make the figures work yeah. that uh, yeah. we would come out with a small profit. Yeah. But I can't do any yeah. more tours. We've done them before. We've done tours where me and Glenn literally <laughs> uh, don't earn a penny, and all the all the fucking musicians and crew are coming out you know and they're getting reasonably paid so i we can't do that anymore because there's no i mean it's good there's good back end in terms of um uh uh, reputation but there's there's very little back end in terms of sales anymore sure sure you know i get it i get it and if you can make your nut uh touring in the uk and everywhere else why bother you know it's no because we we want to do the us we've always wanted to do it yeah that's not in doubt. I mean, it's just we're not going to lose money on it. Yeah, yeah. I don't blame you. Um, speaking of which, why? where did Ian go? Why did Ian leave? Uh, good, uh, good question. I mean, Ian's an amazing person, incredibly creative. I suppose, given contemporary diagnoses, you'd probably say bipolar, oh. I suppose. But he was never officially diagnosed back in the day. And he just seemed to be quite depressed a lot of the time but he never kind of he was one of those really quiet guys who didn't really want to put anybody to any trouble but we knew for years and years he was having therapy and and he was one of the first people in the uk to try out um you know uh the new um serotonin reuptake inhibitor and all that stuff but he was doing therapy for 20 years and he was he was not improving particularly anyway so when we were doing our kind of we restart we started touring in the late 90s and then when we started we did more we started doing more and more gigs and then we were doing promotion for albums and I don't know. and we did a an a TV show on ITV in in Britain national TV Ian's the same as ever you know did the show a couple of days later, we had a rest. A couple of days later, we ring him up, no response. Uh, and he's never emailed us or really? spoken to any of us since then. Really? So he left, I, I'm looking at 
Wikipedia, it looks like he left around 2007. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. He, he just disappeared and you haven't seen well, or heard from him since. I mean, bear in mind, you know, we're like brothers, right? Yes. So, I mean, we didn't, there was no falling out or anything. Also, he was, you know, his best friends with um, Glenn's wife. Just dis, just he didn't disappear. We knew he'd not died or anything. Yeah. But he, I what? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I maybe some of these um, people who treat, you know, the, some of the therapists, uh, he kind of crosses over a bit too much into cultdom for me, and I just fear that you know maybe they said, look, you just got, if you're going to restart your life, you've yeah. just got to get get rid of all your existing contacts. I don't know if that's true. I mean, I can't think of another explanation. Oh, my, my, my my email address is the same as it's always been. My my mobile number is the same. I mean, he went through a terrible time. Is you know, I don't want to go into it, but um, okay. to do with to do with his partners. Okay. And he got into kind of money difficulties, I think. So we, you know, we heard from various people that he was living in Brighton. He was doing a bit of teaching, or he's studying psycho. I don't know what was it. So, neuro, neuro, neuroscience. Okay. Uh, and then David Buckley, who's a famous biographer, okay. who was writing the kind of uh, uh, well authorized from our point of view, not authorized from human league point of view, um, history of that kind of period from seventy eight to eighty whatever um, of him seventeen and the human league did lots of interviews with Ian. So he got to talk to him. Wow. And he said he was concerned about his mental state. But anyway. Oh, shoot. I've always wondered. Know. So anyway, we're not, we decided not to dig into it. And at one point, one of his girlfriends contacted and said, oh, Ian would like to talk to you about um, rejoining the band. And we said to her, firstly, we didn't trust her. And it proved to be correct. Secondly, I said, look, we're more than happy to talk to him. We've tried to contact him. He knows where we are. If he wants to yeah. rejoin the band, he needs to contact us directly. Yeah. I'm not having any kind of scenario where you're going to be his exactly. manager. Exactly. You know, we don't need all that shit, thanks. Yes. And he, she might be exerting pressure. He's a very uh, kind of amenable kind of guy. Yes. And I just thought, if he's genuine, so I just said to her, you know, if you want to, yeah, tell Ian that we'd be more than happy to talk to him, and he never contacted us. So. Wow, that is crazy. I've always... and I've never told that story in full before. Well, so thank you for sharing it with me. I uh, I've just always wondered. He just seemed to disappear from. Hmm. I mean, I know I used that word earlier, but even from fa a fan perspective, it's like I thought Ian was a part of this. Where did he go? You know. Well, believe me, it wasn't there. our idea. You know, yeah, we we you know we. And then of course you know because. Because when we started performing and we were doing all these shows and everything, we had a certain economic model, which was yeah. made it work because it was only me and Glenn, yeah. you know, sharing the, the proceeds and we were paying everyone. If you suddenly, it was divided by three instead of two, that would be a, you know, even if Ian genuinely wants to come back and was well enough to do it, you know, it's, it'd be difficult because yeah. there's just, we're not that big an act, you yeah. know? Yeah. Yeah. In terms of in terms of ticket price and yeah, okay, and everything. Okay, well, let's talk about fun stuff. I have some human league questions, and I'm realizing I don't know whether that's fun stuff or not. The outsider's perspective of the human league split was that you 
weren't keen on where maybe Phil wanted to go musically and that caused a riff and you decided to split. And the thing that I voted, no. I don't know if that's true or not. Okay. It's that's not true. The, that's what we always hear. So why did you, All right, let me, yeah, sh- let me put, I didn't, I didn't choose to do anything. Okay. We were preparing to do a, a European tour, which was due to come up in about three or four weeks' time. There'd been some tension around, which was detectable, primarily because the record company were desperate for us to earn some money, you know, uh, for them. Yeah. Uh, so that's why we put out Holiday 80. That was our attempt to get, you know, to storm the charts and go for the jugular, and it didn't work out. We got on top of the pops, but it didn't really catch fire. And we were always well respected, and people liked the records and everything, but it just wasn't earning the amount of money that they were worried they were going to lose money on us. So, um, be, unbeknownst to us, and Bob Last has admitted this since on film. Um, he was manoeuvring behind the scenes to split the band up. So he was talking to Virgin, and Virgin saw an opportunity, and Bob helped them manifest it, which was uh, they saw Phil as a a straightforward pop star, Mm. right? And from their point of view, from a sales point of view, they they obviously thought that me and Ian were holding uh, holding it back because we had a certain set of kind of a premise on which we wanted to write. Sure. And, and Phil was in agreement with this, uh-huh. by the way. We, 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 there was never any argument about the musical direction or anything. The only arguments were stupid ones like, you know, you'd have with friends, you know. Yeah, sure. Um, very few of them as well. Uh, but the main thing that caused it and i've only really realized this recently when i was when i was writing my autobiography which i go into great depth about it there is one day uh, ian and myself turned up at the studio and um adrian had been doing the slides and everything and and doing really good good work and you know adrian's a nice guy and and then phil uh, made this and phil and adrian were already there and phil made this announcement and he said uh, right, I want um, Adrian to be a full member of the band. We're going to split everything four ways now. And I'm going, I don't think that's going to work. 
And so we know, firstly, you know, Ian and myself were the core of the band, and we got Phil in, and then you know, it's a tight unit, three people, it's a tight unit. Adrian was a was a gun for hire. I'm happy to say to the public that he's because we like the kind of uh, weirdness of having a visual guy as full-time member of the band, but for him to get a quarter of the publishing, because we always split everything three ways just to save difficulty. Okay. We never went, well, I wrote this, you wrote that, I wrote, a, you know, because that's how bands split up, exactly. right? Yep. And I've, I, I, I definitely, I'm definitely right in this case because as soon as you get... Any any band unit that's bigger than three, you get cliques. It's that simple. And it's the same when I produce people. That's why I stopped producing bands. Uh, I only uh, after a while only work with um, soloists. So when I said no, and Ian agreed with me, and you know it wasn't in any kind of anything else other than what were you thinking? Kind of, you know, it's obviously not right because he's not. He didn't play an instrument. He didn't sing. You know how could, he's not having a, he's, not, he's not having an extra percentage of my publishing. I said to Phil, "Look, I'm happy for you if you want to split, share your split with with Adrian. Go for it. Knock yourself out." Anyway, that happened like a month before when the split happened, and it's only looking back on it now that I've I kind of clocked that that was the that was the catalyst. I suppose. Okay. okay. And it's not been helped by the fact that there's been a certain reinvention of uh, truth, shall we say. Mm. Um, uh, there have been various books out, actually. There was a book that was put out by a guy called Peter Nash that was put out uh, and in, con- in collaboration with, you know, kind of Phil and Adrian and everybody, about a year after the split. And he was completely wrong. I mean, basically, I turned up to the studio. Bob Lass was there with Phil and Adrian. And Ian was there as well. And they'd already talked to Ian and exerted pressure on him to 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 get uh, to get him to agree to throw me out of the band who really? formed the fucking thing. Yeah, to for, to to basically that was the that uh, Martin. We want you to leave the band. That is what they. That is what uh, Bob Lass said. And I said, well, that's not going to happen. It's my band. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So then. So when so- I- is there is there a is there a lingering competition? I don't know if you guys stay in touch when when Dare comes out and it takes the world by storm. Obviously, are you thinking, man, I something I I screwed up somewhere or no. fine with it or whatever? Where do you? No, think? no, no. Right. So you have to understand the situation directly after the split. Uh, Glenn, had he been in in Sheffield at the time of the start of the Human League, would have been the originals Human League singer. He was our first choice, but he just moved down to London. That's why we got Phil in, right? I'm happy because Phil's great, so good. So, but then when the split happens, as Luke would have it, it's the inverse of what happened at the start. He was just moving back to Sheffield. He was actually in a band in London before that called 57 Men, which became Wang Chung, believe it or not. Oh, no way. I didn't know that. Yeah, he was the, he was the original lead singer of what became Wang Chung. Wow. So, yeah. So he came back to Sheffield, and I took him down the pub and said, look, uh, this terrible thing's happened, because he's, you know, my oldest, one of my oldest friends yeah. and best friends. Yeah. Uh, you know, would you consider... I've had this idea for... A, I want to I start a new band called Heaven 17, based on the Clockwork Orange name. 
would you be the singer? And he, I didn't get to the end of the sentence, I don't think. And uh, we'd start, we started working immediately. And we were taking alternate shifts in the same studio, in our studio. Really? Monumental studios, yeah. So we were doing night shifts, they were doing day shifts. And I've just done an interview with Joe Callis uh, yeah. for the podcast, uh, which gave me a complete... Lee, you know, complete insight to what was going on at that time. Sure. Yeah. And uh, so, anyway, so, so there was a kind of arms race, and we wanted to get to market first. And so we'd written, uh, we don't need that fascist groove thing uh, within a week and recorded it. ahead of the game in terms of recording stuff and I was doing, we were also recording BEF stuff at the same time, which is like a manifesto for electronic pop soul stuff, yeah. anyway yeah. Um, yeah. with guest singers and in fact uh, Glenn's audition piece in the studio was Wichita Lineman that's what I wonder, so, okay, I've heard that yeah, yeah. and um, we were just absolutely I was so well, me and Ian were, because Ian switched sides at the, la at the very last minute because he thought he can't deal with these assholes, right? So before the meeting, he'd agreed to go with them, and they went, "No, I'm going to stay with Martin." Literally, did it the very last thirty seconds. Wow, it's crazy, isn't it? I was heartbroken by the way because Phil was my oldest. I, I knew Phil before I even went to meet Whistler, met Glenn and Ian, you know. He was my sc best school buddy, you know. That's a shame. So, uh, but, uh, you know, you don't need too many examples of that kind of betrayal in your life. Yeah. Uh, to, and I was talking about fired up. I mean, you've got two options. Either you crumble or you convert that energy into uh, creativity. And I decided that was an epiphanal moment in my life. Yeah. Which yeah. is why, actually, yeah. on my podcast, I always ask the guests, what was your turning point in your life? Yeah. Was there, a, you know, a kind of fork in the road, with you, and you decide on one? Yeah, yeah. You can have the idea if you want. You can nick the idea. <laughs> I do. Uh, really, actually, I actually, uh, we, I actually close most interviews with questions like that as well because we've yeah. been doing this for about six years. I, uh, I, I had yeah, Ian, yeah. 
Ian Burden on here a couple of times. I've gotten to know Ian a little bit. And He's a nice guy. He is a nice guy. Very unaffected. Does not is not interested in being in the limelight or a rock star at all. He doesn't need that nonsense. Hmm. He prefers to be him. No, no, no. Yeah. By the way, uh, I asked. Uh, well, we, me and Glenn, asked. It was a couple of years ago now when we were considering. We wanted Phil to do the reproduction and travelogue shows as a, as a kind of kiss, sure. kiss and makeup thing, and the fans would love it. And, you know, only for a couple of dates. We weren't talking about a world tour or anything. Just to put it to bed, because we thought those have never been performed since back in the day. And they've never been performed in their entirety. But the girls nixed it, right? So, really? Oh. Yeah. yeah. Just and a Phil, of and, shows. and, and, and his management, in fact, his management, Simon uh, Simon Watson Watson, literally said on Twitter, "Over my dead body." Oh. Right. So we, so this is we were asking him for seven years. Oh my god! Right, and then so eventually I said, "Well, fuck him then. We'll do it." Because Glenn, you know, Glenn's got a similar range. They do, yeah. Um, and, it, you know, we'll just do it. We'll say Heaven 17 presents Reproduction and Travel. I wrote the fucking album, so what are they going to do? <laughs> um, it's your music. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, okay. um, you know. Fascinating. But, so it's, okay. not, well, it's not, we're not doing it like a tribute act, you know, so it's, yeah. it's fine. I think you mentioned, I can't remember which episode it was, that you and Phil, though, are cool. Now. It took a while, but you guys are cool-ish. Well, no, what Wham was, uh, we were contacted by the BBC to do this big documentary about the sounds of Steel City and stuff, and their big Jeopardy moments stroke, you know, kind of light bulb moment was to get us to reunite for the documentary. Or not not actually play together, but meet each other for the first time in 25 years. You haven't even seen each other in 25 years? No, I live in London and Phil lives in Sheffield. Oh my gosh! Oh. So we did, and we did it on a tram in Sheffield, <laughs> and <laughs> and we got you know it's just like we'd never been apart. I mean, yeah. I love I, I love Phil. You know, we yeah. were best friends. I mean, literally, yeah. all those yeah. amazing experiences that you have when you're a teenager, your first, you know, your first all night parties, your first LSD trip, your first sexual experiences. Listening to uh, eight-track cartridges, repeating "Man Who Sold the World" all night, riding on the back of his motorbike around Derbyshire, you know, all these. Uh, you know, going to uh, trip in whilst going to see Roxy Music's first gig, you know, all this stuff we shared, and it all came flooding back. And I, you know, I, just, I'm, I don't hold grudges. I'm not that kind of person. Uh, I did for the first five years, having said that, because I thought it was just, he treated me like shit and lied about it afterwards. And of course, he won't admit any of this stuff now. He's just kind of rewritten history in his head. But I'm quite willing, I've, you know, I've put it all to bed and people either believe me or believe him. So I don't care. Interesting. Wow. Okay. Anyway, so we got on well. We got on well for that period, and then afterwards, said, oh, I was going to have lunch the next time I come up to Sheffield. We have lunch. It's great. We have a nice time. And then. We were a bit busy doing different things, so maybe we should write some stuff together, you know, and see what happens. It'd be really interesting. We don't have yeah. to release it or let people know even. Right. And um, he just never kind of bit on that particular bait, and 
slowly after a while i tried contact him and then he stopped replying to emails and his management were and then we ended up doing the steel city tour together which was okay but i mean they, uh, you know, it was kind of like cursory friendship really and then that's it wow that sucks and you know though he i i think he i one of, i've seen him in concert probably five times and i think at one of the one of those he said He's not particularly prolific anyway. I mean, Credo, their last album, is the only one for like almost 30 years or something like that. <laughs> yeah, so I didn't like that album at all. Yeah. It was kind of a letdown. You're right. Um, comparatively, compared to the other stuff, which I like a lot. Yeah. Um, speaking of, okay, so going back to you, what <laughs> happened between Penthouse and Pavement? Because that album is still... It's a great pop record, but there's still a lot of quirky experimentation left over from, you know, Travelogue and everything in that one. Yeah. But then Luxury Gap is just pop straight through. What happened right. so, in between where yeah. you changed? Well, what happened was the this you know, the second side of Penthouse and Pavement were the backing tracks that we were writing for the next Human League album. Mm-hmm. So it was that was a kind of transitional you know, we wrote we we wrote M seventeen top lines on them. We, they were just backing tracks when we split, so we took them with us because we wrote them. So um, uh, the first side was from scratch. You know, the 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 you know the the new sound with you know John Wilson's bass and rhythm guitar and and the Lindrum and all that was was the was a signpost to new direction. And then we thought, so anyway, at first, um, the the singles weren't uh, off that album were not hits really in the in the real sense of the word, but people liked them, and the album was in the top seventy five for over a year. Okay. It might have been top forty actually for over a year. So it was like a slow burner, but it was still selling. So based on that, Virgin gave us an open checkbook for the second album. So we ended up going to, um, which which was great, you know. It never happened now, of course. Um, so we went to uh, our favourite studio, which was um, Air Studios, Oxford Circus, you know, George Martin Studio. The best sounding desk in the world used to be. It's like a, a manual um, Neve, can't remember the 
code number, but it was the best sounding desk ever. And everything, all the outboard gear was incredible. It was just like the top, you know, it was the best studio in, in, in Britain, actually, at that time. And we wrote most, we did uh, write demos and they were, they were sounding really good. Um, you know, Temptation, Let Me Go, and, and um, Crushed by the Wheels of Industry and all that. We wrote a whole bunch of demos. Just on a port studio in Glen's flat, which was tiny, you know, in Notting Hill, and um, they just said on the basis of the demos, they said, "We well, we realised this was the moment to to shit or bust, right? So we either do it or shit or get off the pot, as they say." And we thought, well, we may not get this opportunity again. We need to devote. We need to throw everything at this. And bear in mind that we, you know, we are spending money in the most expensive studio in London, and that album cost a lot of money to make. <laughs> I mean, like quarter of a million pounds then. Wow. Uh, which was, you know, f- what forty years ago? It's probably like a million and a half now. But we had the best players. We had amazing musicians. I mean. Phoenix horns, you know, and people like that. You can't get better than that. It's impossible. You know, 50-piece orchestras. And they tr- because I'd done some other production work, they, they trusted me and Greg Walsh to get on with it. Nice. And that's so so and and Greg Walsh isn't inc- he didn't get enough credit as far as I'm concerned, but Greg was an incredible mentor and teacher of production techniques. Because he learnt from Jeff Emmerich, who worked with the Beatles at Abbey Road. Yeah. Yeah. And he worked with Heatwave. I love so Heatwave. Le- oh. Yeah. So, so he worked with Heatwave. He taught us all those vocal stacking techniques. Oh, man. That's why, vocally, uh, Luxury Gap is like on another level completely. Yes. Yes. Okay. He taught us all that, and we fell in love with vocal stacking. And of course, we were big fans of Michael Jackson, and yeah. and you know, and he worked with Rod Temperton as well. Oh, Ooh, right. I'm speaking my language here. You know, so, so the provenance of Greg, uh-huh. plus the fact uh-huh. he was a top top engineer, plus the best studio in London, 
we would have had to fuck up royally with the with the songwriting. Okay, it's so good. How did you? I'm oh, I'm suddenly blanking on her name. The lady that sings with Glenn on Carol Kenyon. Yes, Carol Kenyon. But it's too late to hesitate We can't keep on living like this How did you find her? How, how did she become a part of it all? Well, we, we auditioned. We knew what we wanted. And we'd written the part. I mean, not specifically the individual notes, because that's down to this. You know, yeah. the coloratura is their, is their thing. But, you know, the, the basic melody. And we knew we wanted it to be a duet, because we wanted that sexual tension thing. And um, so we auditioned. We wanted Josie James to do it, who was on Penthouse and Pavement, but she wasn't in the UK. We couldn't afford to fly her out. Well, we could have, but it was just seemed like a waste of money, considering how many great singers there are. So the two singers who we used on The Men, uh, I Don't Depend on You, Lisa Strike and and um, and Katie Kisoon, we auditioned them, and they were good. You had one. 
but it was like, you know, there's a really fine line between sounding like a backing singer and a and and the kind of bravery of a lead. Yes. Anyway, so we we were looking for someone, and we were down. I think we were down at the Limelight Club in London, and we bumped into Rusty Egan, who's a friend of ours. He said, Martin, Martin, I've got a great singer for you, great singer, great singer. I love Bean Boiled. Every time I see him, he goes on about how much he loves Bean Boiled. And he said, oh, this girl, I've just used her, Cal Kenyon, she's fantastic, you know. And I'm going, all right, yeah, we'll send her down to the studio and we'll have a go. And it was it was immediately apparent that she was the right person. She took it somewhere completely. You know, like... I mean, as a producer, you, you, some of the time you, you you have to, you know, kind of wheedle effort out of people, even top people. You know, you have to kind of push them in a certain. With her, it was like she was going, she was going somewhere that I'd not even envisaged, and uh, we all we looked at each other and went, "This is it. Yeah, this is yeah. definitely it." Yeah, and it, it turned out to be the case. But the the other point about Temptation was, the record company didn't even want to play out as a single. Why? What? Well, exactly. I know. So we wanted it out as the first single. Yeah. They said, "Oh no, we, you know, we we're not sure." I'm going, "What? What? <laughs> what are you unsure of?" No, I, said, uh, I said, "But at this point, they spend so much money on the album uh-huh. that we thought we better take them into account, their opinion, keep them on side." So they said, "No, we want to put another track out." So we said, "Well." Our favourite track on the album is Let Me Go. You know, yeah. we think it's the best song we've ever written, frankly. And they said, all right, we'll put that out. So, of course, that came out, and I got to, like, 41 or something. We were so gutted, because I think, still think... In fact, it just won a Forgotten Eighties competition. Did it really? Um, yeah, uh, for, against 700 tracks oh. of uh, uh, tracks that never made the top 40 in the UK. Oh, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, in, in our kind of World Cup format. Yeah. It beat everything uh, from 80 to 84. So I'm very proud of that because I think I really deserved to be a top 10 hit. Totally. And every, every the record company thought so. I'm shocked and it, was- it wasn't. I mean, that to me, Let Me Go and Temptation to me are the are the two biggest. Oh, yeah. Well, Let Me Go was much bigger in America uh, what, than it was in the UK because it was wow. number one in the Billboard dance charts. And uh, I think it only got into, like I can't remember what it got into the top 100, but... No, that was no joke for us. Yeah, I mean, that meant a lot in those days. So anyway, they released that. It wasn't a hit. And then we went back into the uh, offices and talked to Simon Draper and said, you've got to release Temptation. And he went, mm, not really sure. And I got to the bottom of it. It's because Carol Kenyon wasn't signed to them. And she was trying to, she was trying to, not blackmail them, but she was yeah. trying to leverage her position, Right. And they didn't want to f- submit to it. So they thought, well, we're just not going to pray. I said, and they tried to put us off. So anyway, there was a, there was a, this guy called um, David Kirschenbaum who produced and mixed Joe Jackson. Yeah, I know that name. Yeah. Sure. yeah. They gave him the track to remix. I'm going, you don't need to remix it. It sounds like a fucking hit. What are you doing? So they sent it to him. It came back. It sounded appalling. It missed the point of the song completely. Completely rinsed out all the passion, everything. Fucking delays everywhere, and it was like, oh, God, really horrible. In fact, I hope 
that doesn't exist anymore because you'd be appalled if you heard it. Anyway, came back. I said, right, that's it. We're putting our foot down. Put, just do as we ask, Simon. Put the thing out. Do what, you know, I assure you it'll be a hit. And he went, oh, all right then. Put it out. The first week, I get the head of sales, a guy called John Webster, who's a very famous guy in the music industry in Britain. He was head of sales in Virgin. They got the midweek, and it was like number one midweek. And he goes, I said, how many is it selling? He said, Martin, it's pissing out. It's pissing out. <laughs> they can't press it fast enough. That's great. This is just in the UK. Yeah. yeah. Literally, they were his words. I said, we got a really good shot. Uh, uh, if we can get the records out to the shops of keeping it at number one because basically we've run out of stock anyway the same week out of the blue new edition released candy girl yeah and it, yeah and it beat us by one percent oh number one. <laughs> and that and and, and that one percent i reckon more like ten percent was due to uh, uh problems with distribution and manufacturing so anyway, I don't. I sound like an embittered fool, but I'm not meaning to be. It no. would have been nice. That deserved a number one. You did, frankly. Yes, yes. That's so funny. I had uh, Ronnie Devoe on here from from uh, Bell Biv Devoe and New Edition. Yeah, yeah. Space. I love Bell Devoe. Um, okay, so let me ask you then. I, uh, you know, how men are comes out, and it's sort of to me in keeping at least with the template you've created with Luxury Gap. But by Pleasure One more organic instrumentation starts becoming starts to me anyway it sounds like it's coming more yeah. into the forefront i had phil yeah. spalding on here the the oh, phil. Love me. i love him i've yeah. had him on a couple of times and He's uh, crazy. We, we we yes well, i used to be used to be properly crazy yes yeah yes. <laughs> he's cleaned up his I remember wheeling him to a, i remember wheeling him to a, we were doing a tv show in germany and wheeling him to the um, departure gate on a luggage truck because he was still drunk from the night before and he was green. And the lady, the the BA, the BA uh, stewardess, we managed to get him on the plane. The BA stewardess said, um, is your friend okay? Because I don't think I've ever seen anybody that colour before. He was green. Oh, oh God. Oh, anyway, yeah, yeah, no, we've I've got a lot of stories with Phil. I believe. Uh, next time you talk to him, ask him about when we recorded with John Lydon in Germany. You got it. I'll email him when we're done. Yeah, uh, yeah. I so anyway, he and I talked a little bit about Pleasure One. Were you just? I mean, you've basically devoted your life, Martin, to synthesizers and keyboards and mm -hmm. finding out what's in there yeah. to be discovered. And yeah. by Pleasure One, and then the next one, which. Psycho, yeah. Duke, whatever, yeah, yeah. Teddy Bears, Teddy whatever Bears, it is. Yeah, yeah. You guys have sort of tried, I think, to maybe become more organic. There's more, you know, there's... Right. Uh, what's the thinking? Is let that let me address, yeah, let me address this for you. So, okay, first of all, first of all, I want to say How Men Are is our favorite album. Yeah. To me, nice. to me, that was our attempt at doing like a surf supper or something. Uh, and that's how we were viewing it. It was we were pushing the boundaries with that album, definitely, and and with technology as well, and you know, and things like that's no lie, and yep. you know, and 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 recording techniques. It was, you know, I still love that album. Anyway, so moving on from that, 
after that, I don't know if you know know this, but um, so we got on top of the pops with "This Is Mine." All the reports from the from the sales teams at Virgin were that, you know, they weren't going to make the same mistake this time. They were going to make sure there's plenty of stock in the shops and blah, blah, blah. They thought they had a good shot at top 10, definitely. Well, they were certain. And um, it went in quite high. It went in at, uh, I don't know where it was. I can't remember, 38 or something or 35 or 30, it might even be 30. So we got the spot on top of the pops. And the day before we were due to go on top of the pops celebrating glenn had got a um kind of high-rise little jeep i can't remember who made it but yamaha jeep it was i think and he he was he went out to the uh, off license to buy some beers got out of the jeep twisted his knee exploded his cartilage had to go to hospital so we the following day we're due to do top of the pops now i don't know how much you know about top of the pops but basically the guy who ran it then Michael Hurl was, uh, you know, a tyrant, basically. Yeah. And, um, you know, it was his way or the highway. So Glenn had come back from casualty, got it strapped up, and he was in intense pain. He was on morphine, right? And they said, look, you might get through the show, but uh, you're going to have to have it removed. There's no, there's no repair in this. It's just gone. Uh, and so it's bone on bone, right? So he's, like, really messed up. I mean, he's like, you know, you don't want to be doing Top of the Pops on morphine. <laughs> so the, Michael Hill said, the production crew said, oh, he can sit on a, he can sit on a stool. I said, he's not fucking Val Dunican, you know. He's not, he's not like some crooner. And what do you think this is? It's a dynamic track. Right. And in any case, he'd probably forget all the lyrics because he's, like, off his tits, Right. Anyway, so we did a dress rehearsal and it was a, it was it was horrible. We went back to the dressing room and I went out to get some went to the canteen to get some uh, food. Got back and um uh Glenn uh, had to go uh, uh, it was in such pain. He just went back to the hospital. He had the cartilage removed and we missed he missed the show. Michael Hurl literally 
said, you know, he didn't say, he didn't literally say it, but the attitude was, you'll never work in this town again, you know. Yeah. And guess what? We never appeared on Top of the Pops ever again. Really? No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not with Sunset Now, not with Contenders, nothing, nothing, nothing. No. And, that, and if you can't get on Top of the Pops, it's a small world, yeah. suddenly yeah. Radio 1 playlist won't play, you know, you're on the B list instead of the A list. And that's how... So that one thing, because oh. I'm certain, I'm certain this is mine would have been a hit, certain, yes. and then we've had a couple of more hits off that album, yeah. and so our career it just pivoted on that, right? Shoot, um, I had no idea. I always wondered. Well, see, I don't know. I came to you guys later, and I'm an American where you're sort of a mystery over here, and so I just think of you as being one of those pillar synth pop bands like OMD or Human League or whoever that Ultravox that has just been sort of sustaining this major career in the UK that we don't get to be a part of, but that sounds like that's not the case. No, 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 no. That, that, then, so consequently, that was a big knock to our confidence, obviously, because then of course sales were not as big as we thought, even though the album debuted really high um, internationally because you're not on top of the pops and then the budgets for the videos go down a bit. And so it's like a knock-on effect, right? Everything, suddenly the record company loses a bit of confidence in you as well. So trying to repair it and we're going, um, you know, uh, we're going, right, let's get stuck into the new album. And by that time, we kind of lost confidence. You know, we're thinking maybe the synth thing is not over, but is not, not as impressive yeah. or maybe there was a kind of aura of well that was the you know late 70s early 80s thing and maybe which what we're doing is we're nailing our colors to a master and by that time i've been doing tina turner i've been doing you know lots of very successful stuff and i'm going look guys it's fine you know streets are paid we go we'll just do it. I'll approach it like a we'll approach it like a separate, you know, kind of production, and we'll get just get session players in, and that was a big mistake. It's just a big mistake. I have to say, uh, though, apart, from, apart from a couple of tracks, yeah, like Contenders is fantastic. I think I, I, it I is love it. Fantastic. I agree. We're going to stop this world from turning. Are we building up? You knock it down If you go high, then we'll go higher Beyond the sky Without a sound It's gonna take a lot, but we've got plenty I Keep building up Keep moving round If you use ten, then we'll use twenty They're up above and underground all around We won, we lost We counted up the cost And with even out the scores We are contenders I'm telling you So pay attention And 
and when you did finally come back with before and after i love that album and yeah, it's that, good album. that to me is what i would that sounds like a natural evolution of what synth pioneers who yeah. made the thing popular in the first place would be doing at that time. And I love the don't, don't fear the Reaper cover and yeah. <laughs> which is not something you would think anyone would do, but tell me how, what was the thinking behind that one? You missed out bigger than America. Well, okay, here's the deal. I've never actually heard bigger than America. Oh, fucking hell, man! Well, it's that not streaming, and it's not even on, on like YouTube. I tried finding it to listen to talk to you. Wow. For anyway, that, bigger than America is one of our best albums. It's, it was our attitude to that album was we are one shot at doing a fully electronic album again. Yeah. We're going to do that. And some of the songs on that album are We Blame Love, Dive. Something you can't touch, taste, see, 
In fact, we've performed some of them live. You know? Really? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and um, an electronic prayer. We used to perform that live. Oh yeah, you, listen, it's okay. there. Okay, it's there. I, you just gotta, I'm not finding it on my Spotify. Maybe it's there in the UK. Really? And not in the oh, maybe, maybe it's only on in the UK. That's yeah. a that's yeah. Judging by your enthusiasm for certain things, I think you're gonna love it. Okay. Um, okay. So going back, tell me about "Don't Fear the Reaper." <laughs> it was just it was just a mad idea I had because uh -huh. I thought, wouldn't it be weird? I've always loved that track anyway. Because uh -huh. it's kind of mysterious. It feels like a kind of, feels like apocalypse now to me. Uh I can't really explain it in any perfect. other way. That's a perfect uh, description. Yes. Yeah. That's it. And 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 that kind of, I know it was made during the Vietnam War and da, 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 da. what was it? I don't know. It, it feels like that anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And I just I could just hear it as an electronic track. I could just hear it because I thought and and the other key thing was I had to persuade Glenn, by the way. He wasn't keen on the idea at all. I said, what I want to do is do it as a call and response between your voice and the girls. So it's like, but the girls, in the, the characters in this particular narrative will be like, kind of almost like ghosts or sirens, right? For the meaning of the song. Whereas on the original track, when I do cover versions like the BEF stuff, I always... My ambition is always for people to go, if they never heard either of the original or mine before, that they, they're, there's at least a possibility they might prefer my version. Same is true. I talked to Tony Visconti about, about um, Secret Life of Arabia. That's right? my favorite David Bowie song. And the Billy McKenzie version on the BEF album is it's so amazing. Great. Yes. Yes. It's amazing, and and actually he'd never heard it, so I've just said, "I have." Hey man, about that one. go and listen to it. Yeah. yeah anyway, yeah. so there you go. Okay. Uh, uh, so I, my ambition is always to go. Look, it might not be. It might not be the same. It do, I don't want it to be the same, but at least it's interesting in a different way. Because really, when we when I did Let's Stay Together with Tina, I mean, even Al Green said it said he really liked the version. You know. And so there you go. And it's on video. So, you know, sometimes I've, I've got the feeling that Tina didn't really comprehend what was going on in terms of the modernity of stuff and how you could reinterpret things. And and in fact, I'm a bit, I'm a little bit upset that, that I've been, and Heaven 17 have been omitted from the story of, of her new um, documentary. I've heard about it. I can't this. understand it. In fact. Yeah. It makes no sense to me. I haven't watched it yet. I, uh, my wife and I are going to watch it this weekend. But I've seen it's a very good documentary. Apart that's from that, that's the thing. Yeah, and I've seen people because I follow you on Twitter, and I've seen people yeah. comment to you, "Why are you not factored in to this documentary?" I was look, and you've said, "I mean, I did the fucking stage show." Yes, yes, as a character. You know, people play me seven days a week on stage. So how can that not be included? Yeah, it's yeah, weird. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Now, so let's talk about that because, of course, obviously, I wanted to talk about Tina. So your you first become acquainted with Tina when you guys do the "Let's Stay Together" song because by that no 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 we did we did ball of confusion together for the oh that's first right that's right.
That's when I looked into uh, Roger Davis's eyes and I could see the dollar sign start. You know, he he, he was going. Yeah, I could tell because he's a musician himself. He knew that this was the future. Yeah. I don't think Tina quite got it in the same way. In fact, she said when she sang "Ball of Confusion" afterwards, she said, which she knocked out of the park, of course. Uh, she said, "You know, Martin, that was kind of difficult to sing. It sounded like there was more than one guy on there." And I'm saying. I said, it was the Temptations. Uh-huh. I said, who are they? She said, who she are said they? That? No. Yep. Yes. Oh, wow. Isn't that incredible? That is incredible. You know what, though? It's interesting. I had Rupert Hine on here a couple of times before he passed away. Yeah, the Rupert. God rest his soul. I love Rupert. He's a friend of mine. We were on the Ivers Committee together, yeah. Oh, I love him. And uh, he and I talked about the Private Dancer album, and... I, I, he, and he kind of explained the same thing that Tina was way more into white man rock and roll than she yeah. was soul music. She was not Absolutely. into like R and B and classic R and B. So you saying that kind of makes a little bit of sense. That's why like Cy Kernan or whatever. So, you know, she was really into the fix. That's why he, they're prominent and Rupert's prominent on private dancer, not some R and B. She was more interested by, she was more interested in Rod Stewart than any soul singer. Got it. Um, because I just think I just put, it, put her off all that stuff. So as soon as she got the enough power to state the direction, it was more in that kind of soft rock direction, frankly. And I was really disappointed in that, I have to say. Yeah. I mean, we did a couple of tracks, a couple more cover versions for the following album, and they only got used as B-sides. So, uh, like, we did an absolutely blazing version of Take Me to the River, which I don't know if you've ever heard.
I haven't heard her version. I would love to hear that. It's I love that song. fucking amazing. Really? Uh, and we did a, a diversion of... Um, we also did Change Is Gonna Come, because she was a big Sam Cooke right. fan. I think our version of that is elegant and beautiful, and and didn't it never even was discussed for inclusion on anything really. So we ended up putting it on the BF. That's where uh, I heard it. Yep, that's where I yeah. heard it. Now, when you first started working with her, though, she was not you know capital T Tina Turner, the icon that we know. She was kind of on her you know she was in the dregs back then, right? She didn't have a record contract yeah. when we worked with her. Uh, not that I mean I didn't have any less respect for her for that. No, of course so not. I just I just seen her perform the you know the Proud Mary show we'll call it by coincidence I saw it like a month before uh, I was introduced to her uh, at, uh, in London and I just thought it was one of the best shows I've ever seen because I loved I'm, I'm a soul boy you know I I, I, I grew yeah. up with soul my family my elder sisters bought all the Motown records yeah. and we had River Deep Mountain High in a single you know and I'm going the chance to work with this woman that's one of the greatest singles ever made i'm going and she doesn't have a record contract made no sense to me no. still doesn't actually yeah yeah but it well, just shows how it just shows how lacking in vision a lot of yeah. uh, record labels are well and it was when i was talking with rupert he had mentioned that that even private dancer was not necessarily considered to be it wasn't uh made to be the major comeback that it became that sort of started to pick up uh momentum after it was already being produced i see i thought that was like the project we're going to take this icon tina turner we're going to put all the best producers with her all the best musicians and we're going to relaunch her for a new generation and rupert said that's not really what happened they were just make stay let's stay together had done well Let's make a new album. Let's get a bunch of different producers working on it. And then after it started to take shape and come out, they thought, oh, we may have something here. And that's what sort of, it became a comeback after the fact. Does that ring true to you? Yeah, sort of, I suppose. I mean, I was just disappointed with the kind of lack of adventure a lot of the other tracks. Great songs, yeah. a lot of them. But I just thought 
they kind of got the foot through the door. I mean, you know, people don't realize that uh, Let's Stay Together was the biggest selling 12 inch in American history when it came out. And 12 inches were quite, were, were a new thing, relatively new thing then. And that was the biggest selling 12 inch in American history when it came out. And could they not see that, it, you know, maybe if they pushed it in a slightly more kind of futuristic isn't the right word, but, but a more kind of forward-facing direction, sure. yeah. rather than immediately go to lockdown. I mean, who am I to say? It sold nearly 20 million copies. So I, I, what do I fucking know? Right. But uh, but the point is, as soon as it had done that, the next thing was that she had she held all the cards then. So the next album was always going to be even more conservative mm -hmm. and rock. That's... Because she wanted to be Mick Jagger. Yeah, yeah. And now that fitted in with the live thing. Yeah. But, you know, when we first went to her with Let's Stay Together, we said, look... I know you're not in love with soul music anymore, but you can't alter the fact that you're one of the greatest soul singers that's ever lived. Even if you never do it again, you've got to nail your legacy yeah. forever. Yeah. Yeah. They were literally the words that I said to her, and she said, okay, I get it, and I love Al Green. And I had a list of 20 tracks to suggest to her, and, and Let's Stay Together was the first one, and she said, yeah, we'll do that. Great. Good. Well, you were instrumental in bringing her back. It's a shame you're not factor factored into this. Uh, well, I, I, I'm, in, I'm in her autobiography. I'm in okay. other documentaries that have been made. I'm in the stage show. I mean, I just think it's, it's a, just a... It's not an oversight. I mean, I know how... It's an HBO documentary, I think. So it's like they wanted to focus on the kind of drama of Ike. I mean, I thought it was a bit prurient, to be honest. Well, and we already know that story. I mean, I again, yeah. I've already... I. I haven't seen the movie. I've heard it's really good, the new documentary, but that's the Ike story has been told so many times. Do we, but what we, upsets me, yeah, what upsets me though is that it's it's being touted by Tina herself and her PR machine as being her valedictory 
putting the record straight. Yeah, yeah. Thing and and so, so that that kind of invalidates. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. in, that's why I'm pissed off. Yeah. You know, it's just another documentary. I mean, she's given me loads of credit in the past. She's put out special DVDs. I've had interviews on them. You know, she's. I mean, I'm not criticizing her. She's not well anyway. Yeah. I don't. You know, I mean, we don't that's, know, but yeah, yeah. I, I think, I think, in reality, I, I think this will be the last thing she does. So I, you know, I'm not uh, trying to stir anything up. But it's just, it's a bit, it's a little bit disrespectful, if anything. Yeah, yeah. I get it. Um, okay. <laughs> Speaking of people who might be unwell, uh, Terrence Trent Darby, Sananda. I've had, I had him on here a few years ago, and um, it was exhausting. And I wondered when you worked with him, I don't even know exactly, I know you're on introducing the hardline somewhere, but I don't know exactly what you did. Well, this but, is, the, this is another problem. I produced the whole fucking album. Bob you did? Tracks. You did? Did you not know that? I didn't know what your, I knew you yeah, worked he put, on it, but I didn't know he specifically. Put the credit on, he put the credit on as hardened by Teddy Bear Ware. You know, I'm going, who's going to know what the fuck that means? But people in the UK know. And I, I'm certainly, my, you don't have to look at my royalty checks to know. You know, I produced and arranged nine of those tracks, including Wishing Well. Really? Fact, the only two, yeah, the only two I didn't do were the first single he put out, which was How Did You Great. Let Me Stay. Yeah, if you like, which I really like, by the way. And uh, And another track, I can't remember. Maybe it's the acapella one? The, um... No, 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 I did that one. Really? Um, I, I, did, I did everything. I think it's Rain, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you but even all, didn't sign but, your name? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Of course you did. I produced the whole fucking album. I didn't know that. Yeah, and he never mentioned it. Probably. No. That's so fucking Terence. Yeah. Yeah. He, I. By the way, I've done it. I've done. I've done a, a podcast with him. I've first time I talked to him in twenty five years. I mean, we've been conversing by letter and stuff, sure. but actually spoken to him and seen him in the flat, you know, on Zoom, and. um it was so long. We had to do two two sessions. It was like three hours long. And uh, did he so talk was, for about nice two hours me. and forty five minutes of those three hours? He talks a lot. Did he do all the talking in those three hours? Um, uh, I can hold my own. With okay, good, good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He. Uh, um, so, uh, but he, you know, he freaked out a couple of times when I got excited and called him Terence. Yes. Uh, so he, he made sure that I got uh, edited all that out. And yep, same. Yeah, when I talked to him, I had to. His people had to approve the questions beforehand, and then I they, didn't do that with. Yeah. They, uh, we edited, produced it, put it together. They wanted final edit to cut out a few other things, and we couldn't. Same thing. You couldn't mention Terrence really anywhere on there or whatever, but, um, I'm glad I did it. I mean, I love the guy, but he went, he's off in his own world now. I don't, I don't know. No, no, it's fine. It's fine. And I understand why, because, you know, we were very close, but the truth is, uh, towards the end of the second epi episode that we recorded, um, we were talking about, well, he just dropped into the conversation about, uh, neither fish nor flesh. And he said, uh, I don't know what happened. He said, they said this to me, right? He said, I don't know what happened there, Martin. You, you know, you, you something about you weren't available for a year or something. Uh, and as though, like, you... I said, Terence. Oh, sorry. That's when I said Terence, right? I said, Sananda 
you sent me a handwritten letter, which is like a Dear John letter saying, I have to do this all myself, because he was like obsessed with Prince at the time, and Prince was doing a similar thing. He felt he was his direct competition, so he wanted to prove to the, to the outside world that he could uh, play, write, produce, engineer, and uh, mix everything. And by this time he started, I know this because I was in the studio with Erasure two weeks afterwards, uh, 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 with uh, Wimbledon Lane Studios. He mixed it there, neither fish nor flesh. And the, the, the engineer from there said, yeah, it was kind of a difficult session because basically he decided he wanted to mix it on, uh, on acid. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy okay, okay. yeah and the, the irony is for the first album he was the straightest person you could imagine he didn't drink didn't take drugs he didn't need to he'd got it all going on he was beautiful every woman wanted to sleep with him yep. pretty much every yep. man wanted to sleep with him yep. he was on top form he was fully, fully focused, yeah. and um, you know I love him to death. And yeah. you know I'm super glad we reconnected. That's great. Um, yeah, I uh, I saw him in concert actually in Salt Lake City back when the first album came out, and I bought that and I loved it. And uh, the Neither Fish Nor Flesh. I mean, it's a really ambitious record, but it's not a lot of fun to listen to. And he got better after that too. I got the impression he would never say this. He alluded to this. There was a lot of allusions in our conversation. It wasn't a lot of like straightforward. Um, but I got the impression that he felt, I don't know if threatened is the right word, by Lenny Kravitz, that Lenny Kravitz came on kind of doing something similar and that Lenny got all of the attention and the focus and the dollars and Tarrant, Sananda, whatever, felt like he got pushed to the back and didn't like that yeah, feeling. And that's what sort of caused him to retreat i mean spare me from the you know from the kind of poor me thing i mean he just sold 10 million albums and he probably pocketed 20 million dollars and and i can see that increases the pressure massively but you know some people just aren't designed for that kind of pressure and so it's easier to blame outside influences than your own uh, your own inadequacies, frankly. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, I've got loads of inadequacies. I've fucked up loads of times. You know, you can't lead your life uh, kind of with this kind of armadillo-like carapace of, of uh, self-belief that you're a fucking genius and everybody else is wrong. I mean, I, you know, I'm not saying that's what he is. I think he's got a lot more humility now. I don't know. When did you interview him? This was probably three years ago. Yeah, I mean, this was just like three weeks ago, so okay. uh, maybe he's gone. Yeah, I mean, he, you know, he's listen. We got on like a house on fire. Good, good. Um, but being primarily because he knows I can, I won't bullshit him uh, because I never did, and that's why he got that first album out. Sure. He needs so he needs a sub editor. If that if his other albums had been novels, they'd have been they'd have been edited, right, and and adjusted. Yeah. Yeah, good um, it's, a, it's a bit like me writing my autobiography overwritten by like 40,000 words with the full knowledge that somebody who knows this world better than me is going to come along and say yeah. we don't need that, we don't need that, we don't need that right. tighten this up You know, it's just, everybody needs that 
everybody. It's true. And the irony, the irony about this is that Terence Sananda was really open to being directed mm. from a vocal perspective on that album, on the first album. Mm-hmm. He trusted me. He trusted my opinion. He trusted me to comp vocals, and then and then he very rarely disagreed with anything that I said. So, as soon as you start taking that responsibility onto yourself, you you just set yourself up for a fall, aren't you? Right, right. Yeah. There's no quality control. There's no one telling you that's a good idea or a bad idea. And he obviously needed that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, definitely. Well, I think, I think he still does. I mean, his latest album, uh, Pandora's Playhouse, mm-hmm. is uh, tw- I don't know. It's like twenty, twenty-five tracks long. I mean, it's, some of it is really amazing. And then some of it is just like, and I've kind of playfully said to him, ah, oh, you need somebody to, you know, kind of, <laughs> yes. you know, and he immediately clammed up, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I could feel it. Yeah. And uh, I said, I, in fact, the words I used, oh, no, I better not say it, actually, because well, it me. I hear you. The Ever since he's adopted Sananda, and he, the album, he makes a lot of really great music now. It's just that he keeps it, basically in Italy or in Europe, wherever he doesn't. And you're right. There are all these three or four disc, you know, massive vomitizations of everything, every idea he has. And a lot of them are good. Yeah. I think he hides, I think he hides behind mystery, Hmm. but it's, it's, it's a false, it's worshiping a false God. Okay. Let's talk about erasure too. I say, I say, I say, Um, Always is the big hit off that one. and Vince obviously go way back why did you only produce the one why did um, why did they come to you what what deal was made there so it was really weird um, I got a phone call from mute out of the blue I'd never believe it or not I'd never met Vince until it did I really? say I say yep. oh, wow. and I love their stuff right <laughs> so I got this phone call from Mute, from uh, Daniel Miller, who I love, and I'd, I'd talked to briefly a few times before. And um, he said, and it was like, it, there was no kind of uh, easing into the conversation. It was like, um, would you like to produce the next Erasure album? That was his opening gambit. And I'm going, would I? <laughs> absolutely. I think they're absolutely incredible. I love them. Me too. Me too. 
And um, I think, you know, anyway. So, and I'd never met them. And we met them. We've got like a house on fire, of course, because, you know, even though we're from different parts of the country, we, we're f- all from working class backgrounds. We're all uh, yeah. relatively humble people, but w- with talent, I'd like to think. And um, just got on really well. And um, <laughs> I've interviewed Daniel as well, which has not been released yet, but I had to remind him of this. He said to me in that same conversation, he said, I didn't even realise you were a producer, Martin. <laughs> I'm going, what? Where? Which planet have you been on? <laughs> I've sold, honestly, sold, what, 40 million records? And you've not, you didn't know I was a producer. Anyway, so I, I put a lot of effort into the uh, I Say, I Say, I Say album. I, was, I went over to Amsterdam to meet, uh, to meet Vince where he was living at that time. And then we did a lot of stuff in his new house in 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 London, which he had built that Jules Verne thing. It's amazing, and a Circular Studio with all the synths. You know, it's like a dream come true for me, you know. Yeah, yeah. And um, he's an incredible talent. I mean, he's just there's nobody like him. Nobody. I, I mean, he's up there with uh, for me. He's up there with uh, like you know Wendy Carlos. Mm-hmm. And I agree. And, uh, and Margleff and Cecil and yep. and you know all, all the greats of electronic meter. He's up there with them, except he's got a pop sensibility and a That's pop it. songwriting sensibility. Yeah. That's it. And he still writes most of his songs on guitar. That's crazy. I heard your. I think he said that in the interview you guys did. I, that blew me away. <clears throat> and yeah. you said he's a big Paul Simon fan and Jody yeah. Mitchell fan, which I wouldn't. Have guessed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's a real fan of classic songwriters. Yeah. Uh, but but a str- you know I mean my my favorite songwriter of all time is Jimmy Webb but uh, no yeah I mean he, he he's a massive fan of Simon uh, Paul Simon massive wow. and you can, he, there's something about the the warmth of his songwriting first of all it's the idea of these kind of guitar chord structures that are tra- that are that are transposed into the Transmogrified into an electronic realm, which is which is the secret source of everything he does. Yeah. So it's like it's kind of like there's a there's a warm familiarity, but the sounds aren't aren't, aren't familiar. Mm-hmm. And that's the genius of of what of his songwriting. To yeah, me, that's to it. Me. And then you've got Andy's voice is incredible. His top line writing, his harmonies. Yes. I I do honestly think, and I'm uh, you know I sound might sound arrogant. I don't give a fuck. I think because I've heard Andy say this as well at times that his his voice and his, and the and the vocal production uh, of his lead voice and the backing vocal arrangements and everything on I say I say I say are are, are, are the best he's ever done in, in his career. I could see that it's a it's a great out. Now they are they're just so consistent. They never. They have a template. They make these perfect synth pop songs and they never fail. There's no such thing as a bad erasure album or song or performance or anything because they're so consistently good at what they do. It's amazing. Yeah. But not only that, he, in his studio, when I work with him, and I'm sure it's the same process now, although a lot of the stuff he does is uh, virtual synths now as well as analog. He only used the analog stuff for certain things. But um, when it was all CV and Gate, 
at that time. He treats his collection of synths like a like a chamber orchestra. So certain synths are his go-to synths for certain functions. The, the Moog modular for for chords, for instance, or the CS80 for X, the the Mini Moog for the bass. The da 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 da, da and it's like. He can knock up an arrangement using his BBC B computer stuff and then all that stuff in like 20 minutes for a full-scale song. I once came in and uh, he'd been working on this track overnight. And I came in and, uh, you know, I always used to give him kind of notes and say, well, maybe, you know, maybe try this or do this. But, I mean, who am I to tell him what to do? But it's just having a different set of ears on it. Uh, I can't beat the sound of what he's doing because he knows his instruments better than I know them. So I'm going, well, maybe you could try that and try that. And he said, um, go and have a cup of tea, Martin. Make yourself a cup of tea. Come back in come back in 20 minutes. And I came back, and this was um, like a 20, it was like 24 tracks of synths, like 12 stereo tracks. Right? Everything, rhythm, bass, chords, you know, little things. No vocals at this point. And... Um, I said, you know, just these couple of things, maybe on this one particular instrument, maybe you should try this, it might work. Came back, he changed every single element. No way. Every single element, and it was much better. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, oh, everything they're amazing. They're amazing. in 20 minutes. That's amazing. And I just went... <laughs> no, I would have told him off, because I would have gone... What you know? Why the fuck did you change that? But it was like actually, really, really was better. That's amazing. <laughs> I mean, I literally think that that um, if he had the ideas ready to go, he could probably knock out an album in a, in a week. I believe it. Oh my uh, and re- with real depth and complexity. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that makes sense. Um, <laughs> gosh. He's a genius. He really is. I, it's yeah. incredible. Um, okay. I just remembered something. I We have Patreon supporters, and they right. sent over some questions, and I forgot to uh, okay. key them, cue them up beforehand. So right. I want you to tell me – I'm going to look for them, and I want you to tell me the story. I cut you off on the Visconti Secret Life right. of Arabia. That really is oh, yeah. my favorite Bowie song. So what, were, what story okay. were you about to tell?
I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to remember. Well, basically, he'd never heard it, so I was um, uh, I encouraged him to go and hear it. But the idea of doing Secret Life of Arabia with um, Billy was, you know, I'm, I'm such a fan of their early work. And we were friends anyway, we'd become friends. And uh, I, said, I said to Billy... Would you fancy having a go at this? And oh, I, I am out. And I, I, it's, it's, it's quite fast, and it's quite, you know. And I'm going. Well, you know, just give it a go, Billy. And he goes, the secret life. Oh, where I'm going? What the fuck? <laughs> I mean, no. I mean, absolutely. It was over there with the Carol Kenyon moment. You know, he's like, he, he's saying. Hey, I don't want to make it exactly the same, you know. I'm going, it's nothing like it, don't worry. <laughs> uh, but he nailed the mood of it. And uh, and I wanted to make it into like a fast dance floor thing with a with a huge rhythm and a, a, and with the guys from um, our session players at the time were a guy called Breeze, the rhythm guitarist, uh, who was from Light of the World, actually. And... Um, Tubbs, no, it wasn't Tubbs, was it? Who was it? It was playing bass. I can't remember. Anyway, they were both from Light of the World, and it's all that kind of, um, kind of church gospel kind of session player scene in London, which I use for nearly all my stuff because I love all that stuff. And so I said, I want it to sound like you know, uh, I want it to sound like N- Nile Rogers, you know. And he went, okay, I've got the sound here, I think, and it's like, and it's just like a, it's like a demonic engine. That driving that track, it really, really works, and uh, it's like super intense. It's like it's like foot, to, it's like foot to the floor, and it doesn't stop. And you go, oh, thank God, there's a bit of a rest when when it all slows down a bit, and it goes into the kind of more like young Americans, Carlos Alomar type guitar. But then he's back again. You know, I love all that stuff. So I'm really curious to see what Tony thinks about that. Good. Because um, I love that the original track's beautiful. Me I mean, yeah, that entire album, in fact. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Um, okay, good. I I don't know anyone else who loves Secret Life of Arabia like me. In fact, most people don't even know that it's out there. I I and I, it took me years too. I'm a as you can tell, Bowie's like my number one. Yeah. But I don't love the instrument the instrumental tracks on Low and Heroes. I mean, they're interesting and they're fun, but I would oh, rather I just get to the, I, I'm sure you do. You're a synth master. Of course yeah. you do. And yeah. so um, as a kid, having the heroes record, I didn't listen to side two very often because I was so much more enamored with what was on side one. And then you, yeah, let too, it play out, you know, yeah. I do. I mean, I think low, I love every second of that album yeah. heroes. The second side of heroes felt a bit like it was repeating the formula to me. So it's beautiful, but it's kind of like, you know, missable some of it. Whereas I think low, you know, was uh, definitely a turning point for me. That made me want to be do synthetic rock, you yeah, know, or pop. I could see that. I could see that. Um, okay, I feel like I should. I've kept you for so long, and I could do this for hours if you can't tell. So let's right. Let's do some of these questions and let's okay. get it done. Well, yeah. luckily, all of the uh, Patreon stuff I've incorporated into our conversation. There wasn't really anything all right. that was outstanding. So let's end with just a couple rapid fire questions like you do on yours. You always ask your uh, guests things like favorite this or that. And I always yeah. want you to turn it back on you. So what you mentioned Visconti and what is your favorite album of all time? 
Whoa, that's really tough. That's incredibly tough. The most important one for me, it would have to be a toss-up between um, Diamond Dogs and the first Roxy Music album, probably. Mm. Wow. That, that... Uh, I, 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 I oscillate, but I mean, there's, literally, there's millions of them I could choose. I mean, yeah. I, I've got so many. I mean, or, you know, maybe even things like um, Switched on Bark, you know. Changed my life as well. Yeah, I, I could see that. Um, do you have a favorite movie? Uh, yes, Clockwork Orange. Oh, sure, of course. That makes sense. Basically. Okay, yeah. that makes sense. Um, and then your favorite book? Um, you're going to love this. It's so pretentious. Um, there's a book which changed my life in, in, in a couple of ways uh, called um, Girdle Escher Bark. The Eternal Golden Braid by uh, Douglas Hofstetter, who and it won a it, it won a um, Pulitzer Prize, and it, it's it's essentially a collection of columns that he did for Scientific. I think it was Scientific American. Uh, it was like it's kind of a light-hearted, mad scientist kind of thing, but this particular book is a collection of these kind of things put into a book form, which is. The overall theme is the the weaving of of uh, Girdel, you know Max Escher, you know the staircase drawings and all that, the kind of attraction of complexity and illusion. With um, Girdel, who was a, a famous philosopher, uh, and and Bach, who he regarded regarded as, I think Girdel might have been also a mathematician, and Bach, who's the most mathematically perfect composer who ever lived and the idea of weaving these three elements together uh-huh. hence the eternal golden braid uh-huh. and and uh-huh. giving specific examples in this book um i read it when i was about 21 probably and it just blew my fucking mind wow uh, absolutely brilliant some of it i didn't understand because it was like you know, it was like you know proper uh, Einsteinian you know uh, uh, formulae and stuff, but but a lot of it was and so this mixture of philosophy, music, and mathematics stayed with me as a kind of central premise for what I did from that wow. moment on. Wow, I could see that. And I never learned. I never learned. I never learned to read or write music. So it's not a matter of uh, reading manuscripts or relating it to, you know, the patterns on a page. Uh-huh. It, it's just like all went off. It, it's like fireworks going off in my head. I'd recommend anybody to read it. It's an amazing okay. book. Okay. Uh, sounds like some really light, fun beach reading. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to Hawaii in a few weeks. I'll take no, it with I, me. Just no, I'll tell you what. If you're going on a long flight, that's the one for that. <laughs> that's the one. That's you the might one. need to reread certain sections. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, that's cool. I, that's exactly the kind of book you would imagine someone like Martin Ware would be so influenced by that he would go on to be Martin Ware. That makes total sense. Well, it definitely worked for me. Yeah. Uh, cause, you know, I, I love art and photography and everything yeah. creative. So this, this kind of made sense to me. Yeah. You know, and, uh, uh, and of course, at that time, we were just starting to enter into a digital world for real. And so I just saw it as a kind of signpost for the future. Crazy. Well. Crazy. Okay, last question. Do you have any regrets? 
Oh, fuck. How many do you want? Are you going to need another hour? Yeah, I do, actually. The most obvious one ones, I suppose, are... I don't know. You make a decision at a time, and, and, and it's an authentic decision, and you think it through, and you make a decision. There are three. There are three, actually. One is we were offered a million dollars to do a three-week tour in California in 1984. And we turned it down because we said, no, we don't perform live. We're a studio band. Anyway, I wish we'd done that. Uh, number two, uh, for obvious reasons, uh, would it would have changed the direction yes, of our of travel. Money or not. And it would have just maybe further established Heaven 17 yeah. as a thing. In the yeah. Studio. We were very, very frightened of the sort of thing that had happened to, say, for instance, our friends, uh, Simple Minds. Where the last thing we wanted to be was a stadium rock band, and and do get into this cycle of uh, you know the two year cycle of touring for eighteen months, and then a new then recording a new album. Then uh, just didn't want to do it. We weren't interested in that anyway, uh, and we'd have had the energy to do it then. But we, we were more interested in devoting our energy into recording, and uh, uh, anyway. And um, so there's that. And then the final two things are directly after Tina Turner album, I was, you know, hot property for like a period of time. And um, I was offered two projects in America, but it would have involved me moving to America. I didn't want to do it. First one was uh, the new Rod Stewart album. Which one? What would that have been? Uh, I, I can't. I have no idea because I'm not a Rod Stewart fan anyway. But I love his voice. But I, 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 to be honest, he was a big supporter of Margaret Thatcher at the time, and I couldn't bear the thought of it because he was like appearing on fundraisers for the Tories and everything. I, that was one of the reasons as well. And then the other one within this was in like within a month, I think. I was offered um, the new Bette Midler album. Oh, okay. And I did like Bette Midler, but uh, I thought she was probably past it. And um, and maybe, and if I thought, look, if I'm going to move to the US for like three to six months to make an album, I really wanted to be an exciting sure. young artist, younger artist. What do I know? She went on to about have about another, you know, ten Grammys and. Right. Massive film career and everything, so right. I fucked that up. So yeah, I've, I don't I've, know. I've, neither I've, of those makes I've sense. Made mistakes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Neither of those makes sense for you, though. I don't think. I mean, you're a synth god and you're a soul boy, as you said. So I'm. I always think of. I guess Rod makes some sense, but if it isn't like <laughs> new wave or classic yeah. R and B, I, I anyway. That's to me. Yeah, you got also got to bear in mind that at that time. It just felt like success was just going to go on forever. Yeah. When you're in the middle of this shit, you can't really envisage it f f failing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you just think, well, you know, if, if maybe if I do an album that's not very good, or uh, uh, I'll, I'll always, no, I will always do something that I'm happy with because I, I can't put my name to anything else. But if if the if it's not successful, I'll just make an somebody else will employ me. It'll be fine. And actually, it did happen. Right. I mean, I've got the Terrence album, right? And um, so, and I did load. I did Erasure. I did you know I've worked with Mark Armand and 
you know, I got to work with Shaka Khan and maybe Stables and Billy Preston and you know, I'm yeah. not not a bad lineup. No. So I'm, you know, I I think generally it works out all right. Good, I do too. Yeah, man, I we could do hours just on BEF. I feel like we didn't even get quite as deep on that as I thought, but whatever. Anyway, Martin, I obviously love you a lot and uh, everything you've Thanks, done man. and put out in the world. And I'm so grateful that you talked to me. Thank you so no, it's, much. You know what? It's a really good interview. I really appreciate it. It's nice to be on the other end and not having to be thinking about things all the time. I know. I know, I know that <laughs> feeling. All right, there you have it, Martin Ware. I love that conversation. Not only because it tells so much of the Heaven 17 story and the Human League story, but it's really interesting behind the scenes kind of stuff of the business side of how all of this works. I've always been under the impression that Heaven 17 are like legends, which they pretty much are, but even being a legend doesn't guarantee you, you know, um, big tours, continued success. You really have to keep kind of moving and pivoting and doing other things. And he's been able to do that. And all the insight on some of the, his contemporaries is so fascinating to me. I want to close it out. He talked about Bigger Than America in here. Um, thankfully, he sent me a copy of that, and it is great. And so let's end it all with the title track from that album right here. Um, I, tell me if you can get your hands on it. I, I don't know that it's... I know it's not streaming. Not in America, anyway. Maybe it is other places. Um, anyway, next week... Okay. Next week, we are... Well, the next, like, three weeks... We're talking to artists who have had long, long careers, but the commercial peak of those careers were in the early to mid-90s. And next week's guest is the frontman of a band that I love, and they have a new album coming out, and it's one of the most interesting conversations in a string of interesting conversations. As I keep saying, we're in a winning streak right now. Next week, is there is no dip. You're going to love this. Huge thanks, as always, to Yana Makievich, my right-hand man, for helping me put everything together. Thank you, buddy. You guys can like our page on Facebook. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. And once again, one last plug, Electronically Yours. I assume you're listening to it, but if you're not, what are you doing? Go listen to Electronically Yours. It's a fantastic podcast, all right? Thanks, everybody. We love you. Yeah.